This is the Citizen of Heaven podcast number 96, Joy. I am Hal Hammonds and I am a Citizen of Heaven and your embedded correspondent in Satan's world. Thanks for checking in this week. Everyone wants to find joy, but most of us don't. At least it seems that way. For people in Satan's world, that's understandable and even good. Maybe they'll search for a better way. We as Christians, though, have no excuse. This week we will discuss why pursuing happiness is actually part of the problem, where Chip Gaines finds that smile he's always wearing, why Mike Rowe is more right with his philosophy of work than he knows, and why playing a game that doesn't give you joy misses the whole point. Let's start with what I've been preaching. I try to make a big distinction in my life and in my preaching between joy and happiness. Those seem like synonyms to a lot of people. They're not. At least not, they're not supposed to be synonyms. The Bible talks about finding joy in your life. The Bible does not find a lot of space to give to the idea of happiness, at least not in the purest sense of the word. Happiness in the English comes from that same root, hap, that we use and find in the word happen. For instance, it is a situational kind of thing. We are happy when we find $20 in our pocket. We are happy when our team wins the football game. Happiness is a result of circumstances, and that's fine as far as that goes. But when you commit yourself to a life in pursuit of a whole bunch of positive circumstances, you ride a roller coaster. That is not the stable, joyful life that the Bible talks about. That's not what God has in mind for you. And that's not what we should want either. What we should want is a stable existence where we exist in a constant state of joy that really has nothing to do with our circumstances, has nothing to do with what happened on any given day or what didn't happen. It's not about making sure the boss doesn't fire you, making sure that you have enough money in the bank, making sure that you got a good grade on the test. It's about being in a state where you are content, where you're satisfied, where you're pleased with yourself and with your world. And Christians have a tremendous advantage with regard to this, of course, because we find our joy in Jesus. He is in control of our lives. He is in control of our future. And regardless of what happens in this life, regardless of how much short-term happiness we may have or not have in any given day, month, week, or year, we can still have our joy. That's why Philippians 4 verse 4 is not a ridiculous request that Paul makes, where he says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice always. Paul writes this from a prison cell, as most of you are aware. Paul is able to find joy in every circumstance. It might be a little harder in some situations than others because the immediate circumstances can become dire and become pressing. They may be just right in front of our face and impossible to ignore. But the moment passes and we retreat back into our standard state of existence. If your hair is on fire in the moment, it might be a little bit difficult to find your joy. We all understand that. But the emergency doesn't last forever. Eventually, we drift back into our normal state of consciousness, our normal state of emotion. And joy, if we are in Jesus, can be and should be a constant state. And surely we can see, as Christians who are looking for heaven, the overwhelming superiority of the idea of living in a state of constant joy versus 
hoping that good things happen to us, even praying to God that things happen to us. And oftentimes that's what we think God's job is, of course, to make us happy. How many times have I heard in my life, God just wants me to be happy. I can't imagine that God wouldn't want me to be happy. And so therefore we drift from situation to situation, relationship to relationship, trying to find what makes us happy, thinking we're doing God's work. It's nonsense. It is the opposite of what God wants you to do. God wants you to find a state of joy in Him and persevere in it regardless of what your circumstances are. Don't justify bad life choices by God wants me to be happy. God wants you to find joy, long-term, consistent joy, and He wants you to find it in Him, in His Son, and in His Word. The blessed life that Jesus talks about in Matthew chapter 5 and the Beatitudes, the first few verses there, at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, talks about the blessed life or the blessed life, depending on how you want to pronounce it. And I have heard my entire life, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed means happy. Blessed means happy. Blessed does not mean happy. Happy means happy. Blessed is a different concept. Something is blessed when it is approved. Something is blessed especially in this context, when God approves it, when God blesses a certain behavior, a certain pattern of behavior, he's saying, this is where you ought to be. This is where you ought to go. This is the proper life for you. That's what he's saying here. He's not saying you're going to be happy when you're mourning. You're going to be happy when you give up all the things you have. You're going to be happy when people beat up on you for no good reason. That's ridiculous. Jesus isn't saying that. Nobody would say that. That's insane. What he's saying is these indications, what's going on in your life, what's going on in your heart especially, are an indication that you have or have not chosen the path that God wants you to choose. If you find yourself suffering for righteousness sake, if you find yourself in a state of poverty of spirit, if you find yourself conscious of the failures of your spiritual life and you grieve over them, that's an indication that you're on the right track. You may not be happy in the moment. You are blessed, though, in the moment. God is approving of the choices that you're making. Don't sit around waiting for God to wave his magic wand and give you stuff. That is a silly existence. That is an uninformed existence. There's an interesting little snippet of the story that we find in Genesis chapter 30 and verse 13, where Leah is engaged in this constant warfare, of course, with her sister. She's having children. Rachel is not having children. And that gives Leah a leg up, but she knows Rachel is the preferred one. And so Rachel resorts to giving her handmaid to Jacob and having children through her, and that works for a couple of times. And then Leah does the same thing. Here, have children through my handmaid. And the second one of those, after having four of her own children and two by her handmaids, then she says, now I am happy. God has made me happy. God has made me happy in the eyes of women. The idea of God making you happy by giving you something, especially in this context, giving you something that is apart from God's approved behavior, that's not what God wants for us. God wants something better. Don't seek short-term happiness. Seek long-term joy. It's far superior, far better. It draws you closer to God and closer to heaven. Anyway, that's what I've been preaching. This is what I've been reading. If you watch the video version of the podcast, you probably notice on the shelf in back of me, there is a metal sign, a small sign with the words cut out of it, do good work. That was a gift to me from my wife upon her first visit to Magnolia Farms back a couple of years ago. 
it was small. It was relatively inexpensive. It was decorative, and it fit very well with the philosophy that I try to employ in my life. Whatever I do, I do it with my effort. I do it with my enthusiasm and find whatever joy I can in that work. This is a philosophy that Chip Gaines clearly has. So you see it on his show. You read it in his book, Capital Gains, which you've been talking about for the last few weeks. And this is the last time we're going to be referencing it, I think, anyway. He mentions the emphasis that he places on on showing up to work in the morning every day and applying himself and getting his hands dirty and accomplishing things for his clients and for his company and for his family. The physical effort that goes into what he does is something that he takes a great deal of pride and a great deal of joy in. The idea of trying to find joy in your work, trying to apply yourself, not toward some kind of vacation at the end of the month or a break at the end of the week, but rather every single day showing up with an attitude where I'm going to apply myself, I'm going to accomplish something, I'm going to make the world a better place, I'm certainly going to make my part of the world a better place, I'm going to serve somebody else, I'm going to accomplish some kind of goal, and that's going to produce a sense of joy in me. That's a, a great attitude to take. It reminds me of Ecclesiastes chapter 5 and verse number 18 and following, where Solomon writes here, Here is what I have seen to be good and fitting, to eat, to drink, to enjoy oneself in all one's laboring, which he toils under the sun during the few years of his life which God has given him, for this is his reward. Furthermore, as for every man to whom God has given riches and wealth, he has also empowered him to eat from them and to receive his reward and rejoice in his labor. This is the gift of God. For he will not often consider the years of his life, because God keeps him occupied with the gladness of his heart. Now, Solomon's kind of in an unusual position, of course, as he writes Ecclesiastes. He spent his entire life in the palace. He spent the great majority of his life in, in very positive circumstances. He's been king for close to 40 years at this point, and a very wealthy king at that. And so it might be easy for him to say from a standpoint of privilege how wonderful it is to work really hard. Well, I'm not suggesting that Solomon didn't work hard. It appears that he did in his own way. I don't know if he got his hands dirty doing the work, but what difference does it make? He exerted himself to an appropriate degree. And what's more, he's able to look at other people and see them working for him, perhaps, or working in their own areas of expertise and seeing that when they apply themselves, when they get down into the job and, and focus on the job and do good work while they are there, that produces in them a spirit that takes their mind away from whatever kind of drudgery, whatever kind of unfortunate circumstance, whatever kind of limitations may be placed on them, glass ceilings or whatever. They don't have to worry about that kind of thing because they are doing something productive. And while you're busy working, it's difficult to be busy complaining. It's difficult to be busy whining about your circumstance. And complaining, whining, simply doesn't make people any happier. I have struggled with this my entire life, trying to find why it is that people seem to take such satisfaction in whining about their day, whining about their week. It doesn't make them happier, it just makes other people more miserable. Solomon suggests, Chip Gaines suggests, I'm suggesting, for whatever it might be worth, to instead seek joy in your work, seek accomplishment in your work. There's an interesting phrase that I, I grabbed onto when I was reading the book, the idea of being a runway to others. Maybe that's why the Magnolia Network that they're starting up is in existence. They're finding 
various people in various lines of work. They're starting small businesses. They're trying to accomplish things. They're sharing their stories with others. And the idea of them providing an opportunity for whether it's a minimum wage worker to come in and sweep floors or whether it is some would-be entrepreneur to expand their business, uh, they're finding a way to elevate other people, seeking other people's joy, other people's welfare, other people's success rather than simply their own. That's a tremendous attitude, one that actually is all over the scriptures. I noticed in Galatians chapter 5, we were talking about this, where Paul says here, for you are called to freedom brethren, verse 13, only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, in the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, take care that you are not consumed by one another. Now he's giving that in a rather specific context here, but in a general sort of sense, the idea of using the freedom that you have, using the opportunities that you have to indulge yourself, to get the best life that you possibly can, that has limitations on it. There is a a limited degree to which you can find joy in that pursuit. And what's more, it also tends to produce the biting and devouring that he talks about here because other people have that same kind of attitude. If instead you develop an attitude of service, of pursuing others' welfare, loving your neighbor as yourself, there's no limit to the amount of joy that you can find that way because there is no limit to the number of neighbors that you're going to run across. There is always something you can do to serve somebody else. There's always something you can do to lift somebody else up. Again, that's the difference between happiness and joy. It's not about just getting really comfortable in the moment. It's about setting yourself on a course that will pursue long-term satisfaction in a spiritual sense, especially for us as Christians, rather than just fighting and clawing for a little bit bigger piece of the pie here on earth. We instead invest in spiritual things. We invest in service. We invest in commitment to God and to God's things and find that joy that will keep us company along the way, including and particularly in the times when it's not necessarily all that good. That joy can be our constant companion if we will commit ourselves to work, if we'll commit ourselves to others, and of course, more than anything else, commit ourselves to God. Anyway, that's what I've been reading. This is what I've been hearing. Mike Rowe used to be known as the Dirty Jobs guy, the guy on the Discovery Channel that hosted the show where he would go all over the country, all over the world, and and do ugly jobs, unfortunate jobs, difficult jobs, hard jobs, sweaty jobs, bloody jobs, uh, the kind of jobs that most of us would not care to have cleaning roadkill off the road, going out with the deadliest catch people on a crab boat, whatever it happens to be, something that would be extraordinarily challenging. And he just learns how the job works and learns an appreciation, hopefully shares an appreciation for people who do the kind of work that most of us would not want to do. In fact, would do virtually anything to avoid doing. His TED Talk has totally exploded from several years ago where he explained the foundation that he has established and why he established it, the regard he has for work and people who do work. I would particularly draw your attention to a video he made for Prager University where he emphasizes the downside of following your passion and how instead of following your passion, what you ought to do is just go out and do a good job and allow passion to find you where you do that good job. That if you apply yourself in needful and gainful work, that passion may find you instead of you going out and finding your passion. Chasing something that makes you feel good about yourself, something that you enjoy doing, is a very impractical way of living in the world. 
And it goes really to the root of this, this idea of passion, what passion is. Essentially, passion is an overflowing of emotion. And when you see it in the Bible, in a Bible context, almost universally, it is a negative thing. It's listed among the things that are part of the problem in Colossians chapter 3, verse 5 and following. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. Passion's right there in the middle of impurity and evil desire. Passion is allowing you to be carried away with yourself, a lack of self-control, which people brag about these days. People don't want self-control. Self-control is part of the problem. God says exactly the opposite. We must control ourselves so that we can allow God to control us. Prioritizing God's desires, not prioritizing our own will. That's what God wants for us. Going back to Galatians chapter 5, where we left off reading in the previous segment, verse number 16 and 17 says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so you may not do the things that you please. But if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Verse number 18, going through verse 18 there. I realize how contrary that is to the attitude of the people out there in the world, but we as Christians ought to be spiritual enough, we ought to be Christ-like enough to realize that the desires of the flesh, what you want for yourself in this life, may not be inherently evil, but they are certainly not inherently noble. The desires of God for us, that's what ought to be our passion, if you will. We ought to be passionate about serving God, about pursuing His things, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord, Ephesians 5 verse 10. That should be what controls us. That's what should be motivating us. So when we are looking for our happiness in this life, when we're looking for our passion, we're looking for our joy, however you want to phrase it, I would suggest to you, and it seems like Mike Rowe would suggest to you also, more importantly, the Bible suggests to you, you're going to do a whole lot better honoring people, holding up people who work, who exert themselves, because that's something you can copy, that's something you can actually do, rather than honoring people who get lucky, because you have no control over that. Instead, honor people who work, honor people who take control of their destiny, and especially in a spiritual sense. They take control of their spiritual future. That's the one you honor. That's the one you emulate. You imitate those people as they imitate Christ especially. 1 Corinthians 11 verse 1 tells us, by honoring work, by honoring workers, we become workers ourselves, workers in this life, workers for our family, and especially workers in the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Anyway, that's what I've been hearing. This is what I've been playing. I prefer games with basketball scores to games with football scores. If you don't know what I mean by that, I will explain. And by the way, five years ago, I wouldn't have known what that meant either. That's why we bought a game that is, and bear with me on this, called La Granja. We always called it La Grania. I say called it because we don't own the game anymore. We gave it away, and I'm going to explain why. La Grania is a game that was very, very highly regarded by the experts, by the people whose opinions we trusted. Back in the days when we didn't know what we liked in games, we just knew we, all things being equal, we would prefer good games to poor games. We would prefer great games to good games. And so if we heard that a game was great, we would give it very serious consideration. 
So we brought Lagrania home and we try to play it. And what basically Lagrania is, is this. It is a farming simulation. It's a ranching simulation. You're building the Grange, the, the ranch, basically, in Spain somewhere. And basically what you're doing is you are trying to set up an engine in your farm where you grow a certain number of crops. And then you can use those crops to refine into finished goods. And then you can take those finished goods and put them on a wagon that you have created for yourself and take the wagon to the market. And at the market, you find a buyer and you sell the goods and you take the money and you put it back into your engine so that you can go and build up your farm a little bit more so you can grow more crops and make more finished goods, et cetera, et cetera. And after playing this game for about an hour or so, I realized I'm going to have a final score of somewhere around 22. And I look at what I have done and how much work I put into this. And I'm kind of buffaloed that so much work could produce so little effect. And I immediately assumed, and rightly so, that part of the problem was I was playing the game very, very poorly. As usual, Tracy was playing it somewhat better than me. But still, even so, it it looked like the work to satisfaction quotient was way out of whack. Well, maybe a second play will be better. So we play it a second time. It's the same thing. Clearly, I'm very, very bad at this game. And by the way, I don't mind being bad at games. I'm okay with that. As long as I can find joy there, as long as I can find some happiness, as long as I'm doing something interesting. But I wasn't. I wasn't doing anything interesting. It seemed like just an enormous effort for very, very little payoff. And so we got rid of the game. It wasn't going to be something that we were going to enjoy. That's part of the learning process. You find out what you like. You find out what you don't like. You, you grow and you, you waste a little money, but you are refining your taste. You're finding out what works for you. So five years down the line, you buy a game you're almost certain you're going to enjoy because you know what you're looking for and you know at least you have a fairly decent idea whether this game is going to suit that purpose or not. What I would like to encourage you to do when you are working, if you can, is find some way to lighten your burden. Find some way to find joy in that work. Find some satisfaction in that work. You may not be in position to change what you're doing for work so that you can find something that is more satisfactory. And I understand that. But I assure you, there is a way that you can find some satisfaction there. If you can find it, if you can find some joy where you are, where you are working, it's going to make the work much, much easier for you, much more satisfying for you. And there are a variety of ways that we can do that with regard to spiritual things. I will suggest you, first of all, the very first thing is count the cost. Realize what you are getting into. Don't bite off more than you can chew. And that goes to specific aspects of your work in Jesus, and especially it goes to your general work in Jesus. Jesus tells a couple of stories in Luke chapter 14. After having said, you have to give up everything to be my disciple. A man is building a tower. He's not sure he has enough money to finish the tower. Why start a project you can't finish? He's saying there, when you are looking at becoming my disciple, you realize what it's going to cost you. He's not going to sell you a pig and a poke. He wants you to know exactly what this is going to cost you. And by the way, he's, it's going to cost you everything. Realize what Jesus is asking of you before you put your hand to the plow. And having done that, having decided that work in Jesus is going to be what you want, then give yourself to that work and focus on the positive things. I refer you to Philippians chapter 2, verse 14 and following. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, 
children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I will have reason to glory, because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. But even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. You too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. Instead of getting so caught up in what is amiss, what is missing, what burden we are bearing that other people don't have to bear, instead of complaining and grumbling, instead find that joy and share that joy. We usually don't have any problems sharing our complaints, and maybe there's a certain place for that. But Paul says here, at least as far as a lifestyle goes, and certainly your lifestyle in Jesus, do not complain about what God is asking of you. Do not complain about how hard your road is. And by the way, your road is not going to be harder than a lot of other people, and it's certainly not harder than the people we read about in the Bible. It's certainly not harder than Paul's road. If he found a way to find joy, surely you and I can find a way to find joy as well. Focus on the positive things, and maybe more than anything else, realize why we're here in the first place, why we signed up for this. We didn't sign up so our lives would be easier. We didn't sign up so that our road would be smoother, so that our load would be lighter. We signed up because we want to go to heaven. We want Jesus to take care of us eternally. We wouldn't mind being taken care of in the short term, sure, but mainly this is about heaven, isn't it? Jesus had this attitude himself. In Hebrews chapter 12, we have the joy that Jesus contemplated even at the cross emphasized to us. After this great catalog of heroes of faith given to us in chapter 11, we see in verse number 1 of chapter 12, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Especially verse 2 and 3. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. He did not enjoy the shame. He despised the shame, but he went through it because he saw the joy that was set before him. He saw brothers and sisters. He saw saved individuals, heaven's citizens, who were going to be following him in the example that he had left. For consider him, verse 3, who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Do not quit any more than Paul quit, any more than Jesus quit. Allow that joy to find you in these difficult moments, if in no other way than in contemplation of the spiritual home, the spiritual success, the eternal reward that is waiting for you after this life is over. Don't focus on the short-term shame. Don't focus on the short-term sweat, and, and pain and suffering. Focus on what God has promised you after this life is over. It may not make these problems go away, but it will certainly make the thorn in your flesh seem more bearable in the moment. Anyway, that's what I've been playing. You've been listening to the Citizen of Heaven podcast. Thank you for your support. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe through your favorite podcast platform and or on YouTube. Comments, corrections, and suggestions are always welcome. Please feel free to follow me through Facebook, MeWe, Parlor, or Instagram, or check out my webpage, www.halhammonds.com. Until next time, be strong and courageous, fight the good fight of faith, and do all things in the name of the Lord Jesus. This is Hal Hammonds, the Citizen of Heaven, signing off.